Thank you so much, Andrew. You're very kind and generous, and, and uh, I really appreciate you. I appreciate you putting this together as well. And there, I know there are a number of other people who've been involved in this too, and I really have a great appreciation for what you're doing here. Um, this is a really wonderful thing. I hope that what we can draw from this, one of the things that we can draw from this will be that we'll be encouraged. I hope you'll be encouraged by one another. I hope you'll uh, make some new connections, new friendships. I hope that you'll learn something while you're here, and I hope that you'll be uh, empowered at a greater level to be able to go out and be able to perform your ministry effectively. You know, all Scripture is given by God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, this is important right here, we usually emphasize the first part, that the man of God may be perfect unto every good work. You see, part of what we're trying to do, one of the whole reasons God gave us Scripture was because He's trying to perfect us. And another word for that would be to mature us. Why? Because He wants you to do good things. He wants you to be a source that goes into your congregation and does good things. Do you understand that? When you come, it means something good has come. And that's why we're here. We're trying to be better at that. I was blessed to be able to be in Vietnam doing a seminar in January and also in India. And just so excited to see the church in places like India and Vietnam as well as Sri Lanka. You know, in Sri Lanka, I can count the number of congregations on two hands. You know, when when we go to Vietnam, I only need maybe one hand, right, Hong On? Uh, I want you all to take the time before you leave to get to know Hong On. This man right here is going to be one of only three or four gospel preachers in Vietnam when he returns. And so when he goes home, unless he comes here, he may never sit in a room of preachers like this again. Y'all understand what I'm saying here? So what am I trying to tell all of you? This is awesome. This is awesome to be able to have this type of thing. So on to the topic... We're talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to 7, and I'm acutely aware that Ralph Gilmore comes next, right? Uh, so, and I'm also aware that he has, oh, one or two years of uh, open forum experience. So what that means is all of the questions that you ask, um, if you ask me the question and I scratch my head and I just go RG, that means bump it to Ralph Gilmore, okay? So that's how we're going to handle that. But the interpretation of Corinthians, seriously, you know, it's, it can be troubling and difficult, and, we, and I think that we have to be careful. One of the things that I'm going to emphasize is caution. Here's a joke, and I'm not really sure it's a joke. It may not be appropriate, and some of you who have been in my classes will have heard this before. Uh, there was a man who was in the midst of a crisis, and he was not a man of faith, but he found himself sitting um, in ICU with a loved one who had gone through something very terrible, And at that point, as is oftentimes the case, he begins to look for help, look for answers. And he sees a Gideon's Bible sitting next to him, and he begins to cry out to God for help. Doesn't know what to say, doesn't know how to approach God. God, please help me. I don't know what to do. I'm in a crisis, a difficult situation. I know I haven't been familiar with reading your scriptures, but I can begin now. I can start the journey now. Uh, Lead me, lead me. So he grabs his Bible and, and he uh, sort of, at the end of his prayer, opens it up and he puts his finger down and, and he looks at what he's come to and it says, And Judas went out and hung himself. 
And at that point, he goes, are you trying to... Are you, no, you couldn't be. This is not the guidance that I was looking for. Uh, maybe I did something wrong. Let me try one more time. I know, I know I've been a sinner. I am sorry. I know I've not darkened the doors of the church spilling in a while. I'm sorry. Give me a chance. So he opens up the passage again to another place, sticks his finger down, and the text says, go and do likewise. <laughs> you know, sometimes when we start getting into the uh, interpretation of Scripture, it is difficult because people do actually come to us with texts, and it may not be those texts in particular, that's quite a coincidence, but they come to you and they say, the text says this right here, what am I supposed to do about it? And at that point, you're trying to figure out how to tell them that maybe that particular text doesn't apply to you in that way, the way you're thinking that it does. And so you begin this negotiation with them. Well, when I look at 1 Corinthians chapters 1 to 7, it kind of reminds me, when I sit down and think about Paul having written a letter to the church in Corinth, it actually reminds me of an event that happened about six months ago. My daughter is 16, my son is 18, and we're getting ready to push him out of the house or encourage him to go and uh, plow his own field and that sort of thing. But my daughter, she's got a couple more years, and so she was digging through the refrigerator, and um, she was trying to find something. She was being a, being a little hastier than she ought to be. And then all of a sudden, I've got my back turned to her, and I hear glass shattering everywhere. And there's the lemonade pitcher as I turn around, laying on the ground right outside the refrigerator. And just the look that she has when she looks at me, where she's, she's basically, you know, terrified. Is he going to start yelling? Is he going to scream? What's he going to do? You know? Well, you know, in all fairness, I, ha- I had to pick this story because I actually just went and helped her clean it up. But um, versus the times that I yelled at her, you know, you know, Um, but that look that she had, that's kind of like what's happened here. When Paul wrote Corinthians, they've had this emissary that's been put together, a small group of people, Chloe's house, and they and they've come and they've sent word to Paul. We need you to intervene into some type of situation that's happened. And the question is, what kind of result are they going to get? So when we call Philippians Paul's letter of joy, There's reasons we call it that. This is not really the letter of joy. This is really the letter of you drop the pitcher in the kitchen and let's talk about how you can avoid doing that in the future. And the issues that you get into are so interesting and complex that after you get through reading some of them, it actually makes you feel wonderful about some of the situations that you deal with at church uh, on a regular basis, you know. So that's a fascinating aspect. So what I'm going to do, and I I know that... uh, uh, we want to get into the specific text, but because it's seven chapters, I thought I would sort of take uh, a few minutes, 10, 20, 30 minutes, however long, you know, but until we get to Q&A, to sort of lay some groundwork for what I would consider general principles for reading the text. And some of this you already know, so I don't want to be redundant, but uh, I thought it might be helpful. So, if you're going to be teaching... And preaching 1 Corinthians, there are a few things that you need to remember. And the first thing is, what, and I've grouped two things together, or three things, it's the historical, or cultural, or social setting. And I, my guess is you've talked about this already this morning. Maybe during the first hour with Doug Burleson, you might have talked about a few things. So I brought a few visual aids to uh, help us to, uh, to see this. 
and to appreciate it. Yeah, I'm coming, I'm coming. Here we go. How does that look? Let's see if I can get this on here. Let's see here. I've got to loosen it up. What is this I know you're asking here? There we go. All right. So what is this for? I can't see anything. can't see anything. I use these right here if I'm reading a manuscript. See, I can look at the text really close. What am I trying to tell you? Magnify. When we look at the historical context, we're looking closely, in detail, right? And I had to take it off because I can't see any of you while I've got it on. But you take magnifying glasses like this, and you take text, and you're looking at them, and you're scrutinizing very close. I'm not reading what you wrote. (laughs) And that's sort of what we do when we do the historical setting. And one, one way we refer to it is it's a particular type of lens that you're putting before your eyes to help you see it more clearly, right? So, for instance, my guess is you may have talked about the Gallio inscription or something like that that helps us to date Corinthians, and that gives us insight into the historical reconstruction of what's going on in Corinth, things like that. We talk about Paul being in Corinth around the year, oh, I mean, writing this letter around the year 52, uh, something like that, 53, from Ephesus. Uh, we talk about the Corinthian correspondence. You know, one of the reasons why uh, 1 Corinthians is interesting is because we also have 2 Corinthians. And we have this extended correspondence, and there are events that happen in between. Of course, these give us some of the largest riddles of Paul's writings, right? Some of the things we can't sort out, letter A, B, C, D, and E, and all that kind of stuff. Well, that all has to do with historical setting. You know, it helps us to reflect that the events that happen in Paul's letter, or the ones he dictates that that happened in Corinth, happened 1,975 years ago a long time. It's a long time. We talk about the Greco-Roman culture, the ancient Judaism, the way it would have influenced. We talk about ancient slavery. Issues of slavery come up in the text in particular chapters 1 to 7. We talk about the way they sit in houses. I don't know if y'all talked about some of the typical rooms, but a wealthy person's house in Corinth, you might have a room from that wall to me. Uh, back one, two, three, four. Peyton, if you don't mind, would you raise your hand? Back to Peyton. This is a very large size room. Now, let me ask you a question. How many people can you get into a room this big for worship? Right? So when you start thinking about that, types of, that, that type of dynamic, we begin to say, okay, maybe we shouldn't be imagining churches of 200, 250, Right? Maybe we should be imagining churches of, say, 50. 60 is going to be a heavy audience. If they're going to use the peristyle, where they're kind of sitting outside in a garden area in a home, we might can get a few more members within a home. But all of a sudden, I think over to chapter 11, which I don't have to deal with those questions, but I think about the Lord's Supper and some of the reasons why some of the members weren't able to take the Lord's Supper. It's kind of like if we had a worship service at somebody's home, which they did in Corinth, and it's one of the wealthy members, the question comes up, if everybody can't fit into the room, who gets to go? Who gets to go in the room? Doesn't that breed problems? So the historical setting, the cultural setting, you know, the, the, the social setting, these things matter when we start reading this. 
If you didn't notice it, there's a lot of talk about hierarchy in the text. The way they structured society was very hierarchical. Ancient travel, ancient travel. You know, they couldn't do what we're doing here. Look at all these computers, this microphone, you know, all of these advances in technology, printed Bibles. You know, if we were in the ancient world, less than 10% of the people can read who are going to be gathering for the church. You don't need a lot of Bibles. You don't need a lot of Scripture. In fact, you probably need one set of Scripture if you can get them, and they're going to be in the front, and they're going to be protected. They're going to be in the room that Jesus talked about at the synagogue that thieves could dig through the wall and steal, and we're thinking about bricks and... I mean, not, not bricks, we're talking about mud, right? Mud houses. And, we start, and all of a sudden, this ancient culture comes to life when we start thinking about it. Obviously, in this passage, we start thinking about what was Roman law on marriage and divorce? What was Jewish custom? Can they have Jewish law? Well, of course they had Jewish law, but, what, but could they act upon it, you know? And we start thinking about these different types of facets. So... That's number one, the historical context. Yeah, I know, I know. All I have to say is that um, if you remember this in 10 years, you're going to remember the glasses, okay? So now I have to do the literary context, okay? Okay, we're cool with the literary context, right? Okay. Can I even read this? What is the literary context? Well, what we're talking about now is ancient letter writing. Ancient letter writing. You know as well as I do that Paul followed a basic pattern when he writes his letters. And the fact that he deviates from the pattern when he writes Galatians, that's what makes it interesting. Okay, it's been long enough. But not only that, scholars have looked at it, and we start talking about the, the, uh, the literary setting, and we begin to talk about, oh, rhetoric, speech-making in the ancient world. Uh, y'all may have heard that Corinthians is considered a deliberative letter, where uh, Paul is trying to lay out two different scenarios, future scenarios. If you take this path, this will happen. If you take this path, this will happen. And it's not really in a Robert Burns kind of way, you know, where the two, the, the two roads diverge you know, in the wood, but this is more of like, if you do this, really bad things are going to happen. And if you do this, really great things are going to happen. What are you going to do? And he sort of lays it out there for them like that. Once again, what's fascinating to me is when I read 1 Corinthians chapter 4, one of the things that I notice that really sticks out to me is the fact that Paul says that not only are there all of these factions that I'm seeing in Corinth, but I'm sending Timothy to help sort it out. And what that tells me is Timothy is the letter carrier. Now, we can get into the Greek and look at some of the words that indicate that he's the letter carrier, but we have Timothy who's probably heard Paul dictate the letter by mouth because Paul may have had trouble writing Galatians 6, other things like that. So, Timothy comes... And what is Timothy going to do? He's probably going to stand up in the midst of the church at Corinth and present the letter. Present the letter. Are y'all following me? Why? He could have taken the letter and handed it to nine out of the ten members 
And they'd say, I can't read this. They had a few wealthy members, so they might have had maybe 40% literacy. I don't know. I'm, I'm just making that up. There's no research to back that. But they might have had a higher literacy rate, just a little bit, but still. So when I think about the literary setting, I'm thinking about the fact that Paul is trying to communicate points that make sense when heard, not read. When heard, that's, that's worth thinking about. There are other things that we consider. I'm going to give you a handout here in a moment about the outline, but really, the other thing about Corinthians is that chapters 1 to 4, in many ways, is the letter. I don't know if you all have ever noticed that. Chapters 1 to 4 is basically the letter, and then everything else is miscellaneous events and problems and situations that he has to help them work through. It doesn't mean that they're not important, But the core of the letter is chapters 1 to 4, where he lays the groundwork for the major ideas that they need to understand. All of those issues after it are related to it, but they're sort of decrescendo. Now, the next issue, which is really important when we read uh, Corinthians. Let Let me dig down in here. Let's see what I've got for this next one. Oh, this is going to be good. I've got a case for these. Human experience. Human experience. Put those glasses on. What I'm talking about is sometimes when you get done with a historical setting, you've had so much information that you're kind of like, whoa, give me a break, please. This is kind of wearing me out. I remember the very first commentary that I tried to read after I became a Christian was David Lipscomb's commentary of Romans. And I was reading that commentary because I was about 16, 17 years old and I was trying to read Romans and I would read a paragraph, stop, go back to the beginning, read a paragraph, stop, go back to the beginning, read the paragraph. I thought, this isn't making any sense. I just can't seem to grasp these run-on sentences. So then I got David Lipscomb and then like, you know, the very first sentence, you know, will be Paul... You know, and then just for Paul, there's like a paragraph this long. (laughs) And I realized, oh, the commentary may not be the best tool to help me understand this. Uh, It it took some time. It took some time, right? And so I'm working through it, but all of a sudden you get a headache. And every now and then you have to stop and say, well, let me just have a little time and process this and think through it. And use a little bit of logic and reason and try to just settle all of this information and figure out what's true, what's not true. Because, you know, by the time you get done, you've had 25 scholars telling you 25 different things about some points. You're going, man, how, what am I going to do with this? Human experience. You do the historical and the social setting, and you do the cultural setting, and you do the literary setting, you understand the text. Then you have to step back and just try to process all of it. And the only problem with human experience, you know what that is, don't you? Human experience doesn't help you really to understand and process resurrection from the dead. I remember one time I was in Vietnam. This was about two years ago. And we were using... Churches of Christ are illegal there. They're they're illegal, so we have to use different types of spaces at different types of times uh, in order to be able to carry out teaching and different things like that. And 
And we've moved locations of worship multiple times because of the government and people going to jail and stuff like that, Christians, that is. And so we had this seminar that we were going to be holding for the week, and there was this sort of uh, Pentecostal-type group that was allowing us to use their facilities. So at a certain point in the week, um, we thought it would be nice to tell them thank you. They were upstairs in some offices, and so... We went up there, and we were talking to them for a minute. And, of course, they wanted to tell us all about their ministries. And there was a certain point as we were talking that uh, one of the people up there said, Yeah, we've been going off into the highlands here on the, on the border of Cambodia. And it's in this area right here where we've had really uh, very effective work in raising the dead. And at that point, I and at that point, when somebody tells you that, the question is, how do you respond respectfully, right? I mean, they're letting us use their facilities. I'm trying to be nice. I can't help it that I don't believe that happened, you know. But at the same time, I'm not trying to get into a conversation with them about it right now. Human experience doesn't allow for things like that in the world that I see, right? I don't ever go to my doctor And if I break my finger, I don't ever ask him to just put his finger on it and heal it. That's not part of my experience. So what I do then is I put on my last pair of glasses, and I'll just let these be my last pair. And that's the theological, the theological setting. At a certain level, we have to recognize that God is saying something to the church through this text as much as we talk about it. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is Scripture. It's here for a purpose. What is God saying? When we, of course, when we look at the human dimensions of it, that's what we've been talking about, the literary part, the historical part, the cultural part. But then at another level, after we've kind of processed it, we ask, what could God be telling us in a text like the one I've just read? And sometimes that's really difficult to figure out what God might be trying to say. So that's these uh, theological issues. And part of what makes that complicated is sometimes we hear Scripture speaking about theological issues from 1,975 years ago. That's especially true for many of us when we read the latter half of Corinthians. Just once again, a reminder, I love saying this, I'm not dealing with that part, Right? And we're thinking, you know, when I go to church, this is not what I'm seeing. This is some type of theological issue from almost 2,000 years ago. What's going on, number one? And number two, what am I going to do with it? How am I going to use it? How am I going to preach it? How am I going to teach it? How is this going to help somebody in their life? You know, things like that go through our minds. So what is God saying today is the next question that we ask. Well, there's a few important theological themes that I'm going to highlight here, okay? I've got one, two, three, five, maybe four or five, and I think these might be helpful. First of all, the day of the Lord is a really big idea. The day of the Lord is a big idea in the text. It's one of those ideas that it's so big that Paul assumes it rather than talk about it. Paul assumes it rather than talking about it. Let me give you an example. I'm, I'm from Florence, Alabama, But I grew up one mile from Tennessee, 
And both of my parents went to college in the great state of Tennessee. So I did not grow up as an Alabama fan. Some of you, if you're Alabama fans, good for you. I was persecuted. (laughs) So when I moved back to Florence in 2005, I had been living in Tennessee, and, and the fervor is a little different. The colors are a little different, you know. So I was driving down the road in Florence, maybe the first two weeks I'd been back. And I'm driving down the road, and there's this billboard. And there's a picture of a man on it. And all it says is, he's here. So I start racking my brain like, he's here. It's not the president. I know what he looks like. Uh, Is that the governor, maybe? No. Florence could care less if the governor was coming to town. (laughs) Who could that be? And then it hit me just like that. That's the new coach for Alabama, Nick Saban. I thought that's the only guy they could put on a billboard with nothing on it, no names, not even anything that suggested he's connected to Alabama. I said, that's got to be a coach. It's so ubiquitous that they don't even have to explain the billboard. Are you understanding what I'm saying? The day of the Lord is so ubiquitous to Paul in Corinth that he doesn't even have to explain it. He just assumes in this Jewish apocalyptic worldview that this cataclysmic event is on the verge of happening and we need to be doing everything in line with that. That's one of the two narratives in the deliberative. One is, oh yeah, you can defy God if you want to and do all these really silly, stupid things, but you know, the day of the Lord is going to sort this out. And here's a few references for you just in our chapters. Chapter 1, verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 5. Chapter 5, verse 5 and 13. Chapter 6, verses 2 and 3 and 10. Chapter 7, verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 26. And I'm going to turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 26, and read one of these to you, and I can give these to you later if I ended up going a little bit too fast. Verse 25, chapter 7, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give my opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Now listen to this, I love this, verse 26. I think that in view of the impending crisis, uh, Paul, this is the modern me. Paul, what's the impending crisis? Was there something about to happen in Corinth? It is well for you to remain as you are. If you're a virgin, oh, just remain as you are. Why? There's an impending crisis coming. What is the impending crisis? It's the day of the Lord. This is dominant in Paul's mind. Chapter 1, verse 8. Chapter 1, verse 8. We'll start in verse 4. At the thanksgiving section of the letter. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given you in Christ Jesus. For in every way you have been enriched in Him, in speech and knowledge of every kind. Just as the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you so that you were not lacking in any spiritual gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, He will also strengthen you to the end so that you may be Blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What day would that be? That's the day when the Lord comes and He sorts you out. 
not just sorts it out, he sorts you all out in Corinth. You see? The day of the Lord is a major theme that undergirds Paul's train of thought in the letter that you need to pay attention to. Sometimes he'll say things kind of like, oh, it's obvious you should do this. Well, the day of the Lord. And in view of the impending crisis, this is a no-brainer. And we in the modern times are going, what's the no-brainer? Watch the crisis. You know. So that's important. What else? What else? I think probably the key issue is chapters 1 through 4. Let's use the, the fancy Roman word, concord. Concord. Unity. That's probably the way we would refer to it. Unity. Unity in Christ. We're aware that there was divisions in the church. And if I was going to point out one of the things that we probably should be preaching the most out of Corinthians, it is the theme of unity. So whenever we get into issues of uh, marriage in chapter 7, or we get into whether or not some of your members are sleeping with their father's step or their stepwife, I'm sure y'all deal with that one all the time. Uh, we should be thinking in terms of unity. How did that action actually affect the group? That was Paul's concern. Now, he's concerned about what they're doing, right? But he says you need to turn them over to Satan. Why? Because he's concerned about the group and the group unity and the coherence. So we have all of these issues. On the one hand, we have some people who are apparently going to see prostitutes. And then on the other hand, we have some people who are completely abstaining even though they're married. And I think what we see from these two different types of interpretations of how Christians should view sexuality, Paul's trying to bring them closer to the middle between those two extremes. And what is he doing? He's promoting a doctrine that encourages unity. Encourages unity. That's important. Number three, asceticism. What is asceticism? Well, if you look at... Asceticism is actually a pivotal Jewish concept that Jesus practiced. So if you're ever worried about, you know, what would Jesus do? Jesus gives a sermon on the mount, right? I think you're familiar with this. And in chapter 6, you know, I I was talking to Ed Gallagher the other day, and I said, I'm going to make a sermon. And I said, we have the five acts of worship, right? We have the five steps to salvation. And then we have the three things that we do once we're in the faith, according to Jesus. What are they? Almsgiving. Prayer, fasting. Y'all ever notice that in chapter 6? I know there's other things, and we can get creative and come up with two more to make it five if we really want to. (laughs) But those are the three things. Jesus fasted 40 days in the wilderness. Well, we have some members in Corinth who are going through these different methods in order to grow closer to God. And in some cases, they were in a marriage withholding uh, sexual relations from their spouses, And Paul is trying to say, well, there's going to be other consequences if you do that too much. We need to sort of swing it back. Asceticism is actually a very important concept. Let me give you another example. What's amazing to me, you know, I, I I hate to ask this, but I think I'm going to. How many in this room are married? Okay, this is one of the clearest indications that we do not take Paul seriously. Right? I mean... That means every one of us read what he said in chapter 7 and went, cute, cute, I will go the other way. 
You know, thank you for giving me the option, Paul. But asceticism was important enough to Paul that he was advocating the idea, right? If you're not already married, don't worry about it. Don't do that. You'll be better off if you don't. And I too speak by the Spirit of God. That's different from what we see and experience within our culture, right? In fact, our culture is pushing away from this so hard. This is actually very sad that we push this far, but we associate people who devote themselves in ascetic ways to Christ, we associate them with pedophiles. And I'm particularly talking about what's happened within Catholicism and the way they have been painted. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm, I'm, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm sure that there are eight or nine wonderful priests or whatever they may be who are not doing that and trying to be serious in faith. But that's what we culturally associate with it. And that, that what does that do? What I'm trying to show you is that here's the text. Here we are. Not only do we not want to do it, we don't get it. We don't even appreciate it, culturally. That's going to impact our reading. Uh, Another big theme. Uh, We've kind of talked about this, so I won't highlight a lot. But the role of sexuality within the faith. That's connected to asceticism. But that's a pretty important topic in Corinthians. And it's, it's it's, it's actually culturally sort of a weird topic or idea because, you know, Paul talks about people being joined to... Uh, prostitutes, and it's somehow going to affect the whole body of Christ? And we're like, hmm, that's interesting. We think about somebody connecting themselves to a prostitute affecting them personally and maybe affecting their marriage, but rarely do we think about the overall ramifications it has upon the church. It's kind of like this. If, uh, if Paul was on a ship and you're on a ship with him and... Uh, one of the people falls off the ship, and the ship is the church. In Paul's mind, we actually all have a rope around our ankles connecting each other. And if one of the members falls off of the ship, then it either starts pulling the rest of us off, or we have to dramatically figure out how to cut the cord. You you see? And the best evidence I have for that is Philippians 2.13, when Paul talks about working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The word yours in the plural. He's not saying, you, Monty, personally, go home and figure out your salvation. And once you've got it figured out, you can come forward and we will all collectively watch you. Come forward on your own. You you see what I'm saying? Paul's saying, your salvation affects mine and vice versa. And that's true of all of us in the body of Christ. So the way he thinks about some of these issues like sexual relations... It impacts my faith when other people are having trouble. All right. And the last thing. Uh, two, two more things, and I'll just be very brief on these. Uh, wisdom in God versus wisdom in the world are contrasted as important ideas, as well as rich and poor. One of the undergirding... This is why it's important. One of the undergirding issues in Corinth that you and I are not privy to because we didn't live in Corinth, is that there were obviously some very rich members and there were obviously some very poor members. And the rich members can really take advantage of that. 
And we'll see one or two examples here in just a few minutes. So, let me give you a handout here. I don't know, I printed off a, a hundred. I don't know if that's enough. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? I don't know if this is enough. <laughs> Are y'all following me? This is great. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Now, um, let me just tell you what I'm giving you. Fortunately, the uh, you know you can get a uh, breakdown of First Corinthians chapters one to seven, chapter by chapter, and like everybody's breakdowns about the same, by and large. This one's not difficult to divide up here. That's not true of all of them, but it's it's very accurate. I'm giving you uh, something from uh, J.D. Thomas. I gave you the it's the cover of the the book, and uh, this is one of those things that. Um, I was actually talking to, uh, oh, his name just uh, slipped my mind, Jason Fikes, I think, or Fikes. Anybody, uh, anybody know him? ACU Press. I was talking to him, and I said, when are you guys going to resurrect this series? We want to see it again. Reprint, please. I don't know if they're going to, but I'm giving you a book that's out of print. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to tell you. Like, so if... Uh, if you're interested in it, come look at my copy and then start hoping and praying that one of our fellow preachers who's selling his library on eBay list it and then you can buy it, okay? Um, I don't know if there's a, a stash of these in Abilene, Texas, but uh, the print date on this right here, let me look here, 1972. But J.D. Thomas, man, what a celebration of a great biblical scholar uh, within the church that we've had from from times past. Um, So you can see the summary that we have here. Introduction with the greetings, the thanksgiving, the hope. And then after that, you have his breakdown, the problem of carnality. See how he has factions, chapter 1 through chapter 4? That's number 2A, Roman numeral 2A, factions. That's the core of our section, right? Then after that, you have B, other expressions of carnality, chapter 5 and 6. And then, see, he did it exactly how we should have done it. Chapter 7 goes with the latter half. (laughs) 7, 1 through 14, 40. Uh, But anyway, there's chapter 7, the marriage relationship, okay? So having some type of understanding of the breakdown, I think, is important. There, need one. Okay. Here's my general advice. Oh yeah, we're at, we're out of time. I have to make it quick. When we start getting into this text, and when you're in a congregational setting, don't get lost in the details. And number two, be cautious in specific applications. Be cautious in specific applications. Okay. Mm, there we go. We're done. That nothing else to say. Not really, but... And then there are just one or two other things. We need to keep in mind hermeneutical keys. The factions that he's talking about in chapter 1 through 4 were in Corinth. They're not necessarily addressing issues of denominations today. Uh, Christians suing in court. That's a prominent one. Paul basically takes the path of be defrauded, be wronged. That one's a challenge to us. Um, 
and a couple other things, but we're, we're kind of out of time. So let me close with a story. I was, one of the places I was preaching last month was in Sri Lanka. And Sri Lanka is a very interesting country because uh, they were in the midst of a civil war for about three decades. And the first time I went was 26 years ago. And we were able to visit a town where a church was located near to the border of the, where the war zone was. And then since then, I've been able to go back a few times. And I was there this spring. And uh, one of the places that we've been going since the war ended in 2009, it's been about a decade, they've been rebuilding the country. They've been rebuilding the country. So we decided that we had a couple contacts that we wanted to try to visit them in the old Tamil rebels headquarters in the north and so we took a car drove all the way to the north we stayed in a town that only had electricity half the day there was only one paved road through the whole area and it was called a highway and it was two lanes Uh, everything else was dirt roads Uh, we went three miles off the main highway and we stopped at a bridge and we're looking off the bridge and there's crocodiles in the water and i'm like where are we there's uh, obviously there's no McDonald's. There's uh, there's no fat. You can't even get coffee, a good cup of coffee. They drink tea. And uh, so that's where we are. And in order to go where we're going to preach, and we had lined up about five days of preaching with different groups. And we ended up preaching for about 300 different people, about five different groups. But in order to get there, we had to drive another three hours from where we were staying just to get there. And as we were driving, one of the things that stuck out to me as we were going through what's called the Elephant Pass is that they are still actively trying to get rid of the landmines. And we had to drive through a minefield to get to where the people are to preach. And that kind of just really grabbed me for a moment. Now, they're not on the road, as far as we know. know, A lot of people are driving on the road. It's all around the road. We finally got to the location, and all of this overwhelming amount of data is hitting me, right? I mean, it's really hot. It's like 100 degrees, no electricity, hard to sleep. Uh, The food is extremely hot and spicy. And the roads are terrible. I mean, you're so sick by the time you get there. And then we get out and we're at this little bitty small building that where there's like 80 people crammed inside of it. And I look at one of the other preachers, um, who, one of the guys who was kind of coordinating, he was an Indian. I said, so what are we going to do? He says, well, first, you're going to get up and you're going to preach the gospel. <laughs> you know, and I, as an American, what's my first question? How long do I have? And he looks at me in a quizzical way, like he doesn't even understand the question. (laughs) You know, know, it's like, he's like, what are you talking about? You know, how much time do you have? But all of a sudden, what I realized is I was trying to quickly cut away all kinds of layers of human experience and everything that I was in the midst of, get over myself and all of a sudden tried to really I'm trying to really focus on this moment and preaching the gospel effectively. You see? And that's what I'm asking us to do with Corinthians. 
Yes, we get it. we're going to get into the details, but you've got to, you've got to focus to figure out what the main point is. What does this have to do with the Christian unity in Corinth? Why would he address this as it impacts the unity in Corinth? You see? And that's what we have to do because when the questions come, it's hard to do that. You forget. So, I'm going to end right there. And, uh, and as you notice what I did, rather than specifically deal with the different texts, I'm going to let you ask about whatever quest, uh, text that you want to talk about. And for, I guess it's what, half an hour? Is that right? More or less? I can't remember for sure. Okay. Okay. At the very end, you said a couple of things. Don't get lost in the details. Yeah. And what was the second thing? Uh, be cautious with your specific applications. Be cautious. I can give an example of that if you want me to. Um, so, for instance, uh, when he starts giving advice about, uh, we can go to chapter 7, the very beginning of chapter 7. Now concerning, this is verse 1, now concerning the matter about which he wrote, it is well for a man not to touch a woman. That would have been one of the slogans that they were saying in Corinth. But because of cases of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. To be clear, this is not a situation that some of you may have dealt with where you have a husband and a wife and they come into your office wanting marriage counseling and the, uh, counseling and the husband, the first thing he says is, is, she's quit having sex with me and I want you to make her, you know. That happens. It does happen. So spouses will say, well, I have my conjugal rights. I should. That's not what Paul's even dealing with right here. Now, there may be an application that goes in that direction, You see what I'm saying? That's not what's going on here. He's talking about people who are devoting themselves to prayer as an ascetic practice, and they're thinking that sexuality is going to come in the way between them and God. This was not originating in a marital dispute, necessarily. But we usually come across this text in the midst of marital disputes. And You you see what I'm saying? text is doing something different over here. And we're talking about this over here. Why? Because somebody came in, they read it, said, you're supposed to be whenever I want to. And you're like, ah, maybe we're not reading this right. You know. So that, that's an example of being cautious. Because I think sometimes we're tempted to say, yeah, you're right. That's what the text says. <laughs> well, that's not exactly what it says. Uh, so questions, other, other questions. Yes. Day of the Lord. Okay. 1 8, 3 13, 4 5, chapter 5, 5, verse 5. And then again in verse 13, chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, and chapter 6, verse 10, chapter 7, verse 1. And then chapter 7, verse 26. You notice how I just listed 7-1. You know what that has to do with asceticism? The imminence of the day of the Lord is so pressing that why are we worried about conjugal rights? That's kind of the direction they were going with it. Does that, does that make sense, what I'm saying? Like, it's kind of like this. If I told you that the Lord would be here in five minutes, five minutes, how many of you are going to say, I'll be right back. I've got to go fulfill my conjugal rights real quick. I mean, that may be a silly example. But do you understand how the Lord coming back imminently 
kind of pushes everything back to the side is maybe a little less important. It's kind of like that. Go ahead. Well, um, that's, a, that, that's a, a really good question. What I encourage, uh, the, the first thing that I encourage people to do, if you're a minister, get in the habit of reading the whole text. Um, I mean, you should sit down and read all of Corinthians at once. Read it out loud. Uh, highlight the themes. Understand what the themes are. And then allow yourself to refer back to them. What I'm getting at is you're, you're trying first and foremost to understand the text. And then once you've read it with some of these ideas in mind, at that point you have to figure out, well, okay, how am I going to apply this? How does this apply to my congregation? Because, I mean, let's be fair about it. Some people could come to you, and, and this is a silly example I use too, but they might ask you whether or not Jesus likes Fords or whether or not he likes Chevys, right? It's a fair question, Right? Does anybody want to tell me? He likes Hondas. <laughs> he likes Hondas. Okay. Okay. <laughs> oh, man, that was too good. Too good for your... Yeah. So, now, now getting back to what you were saying, good joke. <laughs> um, what happens is we have questions that we're wanting to ask of the text, and we're trying to answer questions. Sometimes the answers for the questions are, well, he doesn't directly deal with that. Sometimes that is the answer. He doesn't deal with that specific problem. So my, what I'm suggesting to do is understand as best you can the text first, then see if there's an application there. And uh, we, I think we want there to be applications uh, in more cases than they are. And sometimes we don't step away from it enough to be able to admit that. Kind of like I don't think Scripture is going to tell us whether or not Jesus likes Ford or Chevys. You know? It's not going to answer that question. We want it to. Uh, some of us do. But it doesn't. Uh, I don't know if that answers the question well enough. But other questions, specific or not? Mm-hmm. Since so much of uh, the message of First Corinthians is about this unity idea, mm-hmm. uh, something that I've been trying to ask and, and investigate for a few years now, we tend to think of church structure in terms of what we know here, you know, mm-hmm. now. How did the? This is a letter to the Corinthians, which yeah. is a big city, and it's a big city, and we've got people meeting in houses, Chloe's household, and, and other households. Was the unity supposed to be? You know, we talk about church autonomy, for instance, and leadership and that kind of stuff. And um, was the unity that Paul is talking about here the unity of these different house churches with one another? Is it the unity just within those members who meet at, for instance, Chloe's house? How does the church, you know, was there one church in Corinth that just happened to meet in many different houses? Was there, were there multiple churches in Corinth because they were at separate locations? Mm-hmm. I'm saying there's yeah. some interesting unity issues that come up there that I, I haven't figured out how to answer. Yeah, and I don't know if I can answer them for you too. Uh, or either. Uh, one of the reasons why I th- this is an interesting question is because of the progress of history and advances in technology, just like Ford and Chevys, 
have presented scenarios that were beyond the purview of what Paul was even thinking about. Uh, so, for instance, if we, let's get specific, we start talking about the church that was meeting in Jerusalem and Acts, and we see them meeting at Solomon's porch. And one of the reasons, the obvious reasons they're meeting at Solomon's porch is because it's a bigger facility. Uh, there's some theological reasons for being at Solomon's porch too, but at a practical level, this is a large area that people could gather. However, when you actually break it down, even in Acts chapter 2, what are they doing? They're, they're gathering at homes and breaking bread because those are the facilities that they have at their disposal. Not to mention the fact that there's the issue of legality, things like that. When we go to, uh, as I'll use it Vietnam as an example again, this is exactly the issue that comes up. Uh, if you were to go over to Vietnam today and you had $5 million in your pocket and you're going to buy a piece of property and build a church building on it, uh, you probably can't. You probably can't. Uh, so you're going to have to work through the avenues at your disposal. So when Paul talks about the church in Rome, uh, he, we do have multiple groups meeting that do represent the church in Rome. However, I don't think Paul was actually trying to make a statement on the issue that I hear people talking about. You know, well, they say, we should all meet at the Colosseum, one, char- one church in the whole city. Have y'all ever heard that before? Okay. He's not even speaking to those issues because it's not even an option. You have to have the money and the technology and the capability to build buildings like that. And they don't have any of those. So it's, it's way beyond their purview, which means we have to speculate about what Paul might have said about an issue like that. It's not answered. Uh, in the text. That's my take on it anyway. I don't know if that well, I guess speaks maybe, to it. You know, to, to follow it up and maybe give it some, how do we interpret it when, it when there's this group from Chloe's household that have brought him information? Yeah. And then he writes a response. Yeah. Does the response apply to Chloe's household or does the response apply across the board to everybody in Corinth no matter where you meet? Yeah. Uh, there may be some disagree- disagreement on this, but I think in this case, uh, this case, Chloe's household doesn't necessarily represent a different church group meeting in Corinth. Right. I think it may represent uh, a faction or at least a household that is associated with the church in Corinth. Family. Yeah. And so I think that they're still part of a larger unit uh, that meets there. So they're just, they just happen to be the volunteers who reached out to him. However, I don't think they represent a group into their own. You know, not like you see in Romans 16 where he's you know, talking about the, 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 the church of the Gentiles, for instance, you know, or um, the, the church that's meeting in Aquila and Priscilla's home. You know, I think that might be a little bit different phenomenon. I don't know if that answers or speaks to it or, or not, but... Good, good thought. Like what Titus is told, he's not told to appoint elders in every church. He's told to appoint elders in every polis, every mm. town or every city. And the situation on Crete may be different than in Corinth, but I just wonder yeah. if his point may be correct that he may just be talking to one particular group because the social situation seems to be yeah. one particular group showing yeah. each other out of the way at the, at the love feast. Yeah. So it may be when you talk to the assembled at Corinth, you're just talking to one assembly. Yeah. That would be wholesale different than what we yeah. envision today. Yeah, and two things to go along with that. You know, 
some of these issues are, are questions of luxury. You know, the luxury of having multiple congregations in a city. You know, is Paul even anticipating yet that point where we have thousands of members in a city where he's been working in which we could possibly have multiple? I don't think he's dealing uh, with that type of issue uh, in particular. It's early enough on in, in the growth. I had a second thought, but it escapes me. I just lost it. Mm-hmm. So we don't know how large the church may have been. Right. Estimates by people, but it's just a guess. Yeah. Uh, so, however they met, however that became a practicality for yeah. them, he viewed the church at Corinth as one church. Yeah. And and I appreciate you saying that. And part of what that tips off too is a cultural phenomenon that's difficult for us to appreciate is. Do you know how hard it was for them to assemble? So, for instance, when we preach, I'm jumping into Hebrews, but when we preach Hebrews, don't forsake the assemblage, you know, what we're dealing with is an issue of people who we're thinking are too lazy and they should just get up and come to church or things like that. In their case, it's actually a physical hardship. You know, going back to the church that that I met with, one in Columbia, uh, Colombo, Sri Lanka, some of the members are commuting four hours one way to get there. And this is a normal phenomenon the world over in the year 2020. Did y'all get that? It's normal in 2020. Maybe not where we live, but the gathering together is difficult, which means in Corinth, uh, the assembly itself of the church is very difficult, which means you're going to naturally end up having smaller assemblages at different times for different purposes. It doesn't mean it constitutes a church, but it does mean that they're still trying to get together, you know. So that's something that's very different from what we see with our own eyes, you know. And so realizing, like I said, I'm talking about travel, you know, uh, just, just take the cars away for a minute. You know, your whole world is going to revolve around what? Five, five miles, ten mile radius from right here? Uh, how long is it going to take you to walk five miles? You know, I, I hope that's something you really need, you, you know. So that's the world they're living in. You're saying, well, they could have just got on a chariot. No, they couldn't. Most of them would never have access to chariots or mules or or any type of work animals, unless it was somebody else who owned it and they were using it to plow in the field. You see what I'm saying? So walking, they're going to be walking everywhere they go. So just church assembly is a big deal. And so when we read about uh, from the second century, we read uh, in the letter of Pliny that the Christians were, uh, in, at that time in uh, Asia Minor, were in the habit of assembling on Saturday night, probably staying overnight together, Worshiping before sun came up on Sunday and then doing what? They probably had to go back to work. Uh, or whoever, the, if they were a freedman, they were in the employment of somebody. So they have to go basically in the night hours and they have to be back. So, the, wow, what, what a difference. So, but it's still a church, you know. A good question. I went too long on that. Uh, other questions or comments? Yeah, I can wait. I can wait. <laughs> Do you want to 
get into the stuff in chapter 7 about the I say, not, not I, but the Lord? And, and then the Lord I think the question is, do you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, sure, we can get into that. Um, that's another uh, a good, good facet. Let's turn to chapter 7. Okay. In chapter 7, one of the things that we notice is Paul, Paul cites sources. You know, this is not just for college. <laughs> he cites his authorities is what I'm getting at. Now, this is something that Paul, if he has an authority, he will mention it to you. Let me give you just a couple of examples of this. Let's turn over to uh, chapter 15. Sorry, I'm in... Uh, I'm going a little further than I should, right? Chapter 15, verse 3. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. This whole little bit before he gives the gospel summary, that's the gospel summary, I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received. So what does he just say? Sorry, I'm using you as an example again. I handed on to you what I had previously received from someone else. You see what I'm saying? We have a word for that. That's called tradition. Tradition. It's a handing on. Well, in this case, when Paul cites the gospel summary in chapter 15, he's basically telling you this is some type of teaching that is received and accepted within the churches, and I'm passing it your way, and I like the summary of it. And then he'll elaborate on it further as he goes. However, you turn over to chapter 11, he does something a little bit different here at the beginning. Verse 2, I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions just as I handed them on to you. And then at the very end of this passage, after he gives this teaching that has to do with veils and all that kind of stuff, look at the very end of it. Verse 16, For, But if anyone is disposed to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. So in this case, he actually says we have a teaching here, it's good, it's been helpful, but he identifies it as a custom that we don't have within the churches. He's basically saying, mm, this one's at a different level. It's a different level. However, at a higher level, look down at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you. I received from who? And who's the Lord? Jesus. In case you've missed it, when Paul says Lord, he typically, if not always, means Jesus, okay? The Lord. I received this from the Lord. And, and just, it just so happens that verse 23 and following, oh, it fits pretty closely with Luke, one of the rare places in Paul's writings where we have some verbatim quotations from the Gospels. This is one of the very few that we see that type of overlap. So we see him citing sources and, and explaining where he gets his information. So when we come to chapter 7, uh, Adam, we're doing some of the same type of stuff here with these different issues. Um, Look, uh, the very first issue that has, that, where he talks about not withholding oneself from your spouse, if you look down at verse 6, he says, This I say by way of concession, not of command. Okay? Not of command. 
I wish that you were like me. Verse 7. Then verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is well for them to remain unmarried as I am. Verse 10, to the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. He's differentiating sources. You see that? I'm not saying this on this particular issue. The Lord's saying this one. Then look down at verse 12. To the rest I say, I am not the Lord. Okay, so we're back to Paul again. And then we could go down a little bit further. Verse 25, I'm just giving a few. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give my opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Go down a little bit further. Let's go to the very end of it. Uh, Verse 39, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if the husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes only in the Lord. But in my judgment, she is more blessed if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So this one, I know it's a little bit of fancy footwork here, but it's almost like Paul sometimes says, here's what I think about it. Uh, Here's what I think about it. I speak by the Spirit of God. Here's what the Lord says. You see, and then, and then below that, he says, this one's custom. Churches of God don't actually have a policy on this one. You see the different levels he's given of his, of, of his authorities? The last one is fascinating uh, when he says that uh, she would be more blessed if she remains as she is. Here's the irony. Uh, Paul's really hinting at the fact that she can devote herself more to God if she remains unmarried. And that is true. Have you all ever thought about that? It is true. And, um, well, you may not want to do that, or whoever you're talking to may not want to do that, but it is true. (laughs) So when I see him delineating these sources, he's trying to help them understand where he's drawing his ideas from, he wants them to know. And if y'all have never noticed this, we take this for granted, but all of Paul's audiences, the ones who received his letter, letters, they did not necessarily respect Paul. I mean, he spends like half of Galatians defending his apostleship. Why would he do that? Because they don't respect him. He's actually dishing stuff out against Peter chapter at the end of chapter 1 beginning of chapter 2 why he's trying to establish his authority what is he doing in first corinthians chapter 9 he's trying to establish his authority so what that means is him giving his references means he's trying to help them understand the weight they can put on these things and i don't know about you at a practical level that actually makes me go Phew. paul is not the only minister out there that nobody is going to listen to at this congregation you know, I mean, I, I can, you know, I'm sure you have them too. Countless, countless situations where people say, what do you think about this verse? And you tell them with all of your research and your insight. And then they go, fascinating view. I, I don't agree with you. And then they just go on and they don't even want to talk about it. You know, well, Paul had to deal with that too. <laughs> uh, good question. Uh, I don't know if we dealt with it, Adam, did we? No, yeah, I, I think that so, and you can see it at different times throughout the letter. And that's what I wanted wanted to uh, you all to see that he does that. Uh, other questions? Um, what are the 
dates for um, the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians? Well, um, I always like to say we don't know because we don't. Um, uh, and the reason I say that is because at a certain level, I think it's really important for all of us to... Uh, I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, what we just did was we just hit the pause button and we did this right here, right? It's a different lens, right? And so um, we think it was probably between 52 and 55. And you can, you can come up with that date by matching up uh, Paul's letters to Corinth with how it breaks down with what happens in Acts. Beginning in Acts chapter 18 is the, where the establishment of the church in Corinth takes, takes place. And so you can kind of sync it up for the, the period of time when he is in Ephesus when you get over to chapter 19 in Acts. So... As best we can tell, 52 to 55, both of the letters are coming uh, over to Corinth. Yes? How do you feel uh, that we, that you said earlier about asceticism, where we seem to be moving farther and farther away from it. Yeah. Do you see any ways that we can promote that in our churches or promote that in just in our lives in general um, as a spiritual practice, not taking it too far like the Corinthians did, but yeah. Yeah, um, I, think, I think that we can, and, and one of the ways that we can start doing that is if you go back to, I know this isn't Corinthians, but if you go back to Matthew chapter 6, it's real important that when we teach this, because I'll tell you what usually goes down when I hear it taught. We talk all about it, the fasting part, and then somebody will raise their hand and say, well, we don't have to do that anymore. I'm like, wow, we just dashed the whole thing. Um, if you look closely... What Jesus does, there, there's actually a pattern. He follows a specific pattern when he talks about almsgiving. And then it's, a, it's the same pattern when he talks about prayer and the same pattern when he talks about fasting. He says, don't do it like this. Do it like this. And there's a few more details in the middle. You know, I'm, I'm reducing it a little bit. However, what we get out of it is don't do this. But what amazes me is we never apply that to almsgiving. I mean, we will use any type of resource we can to encourage the brethren to give, right? And, oh, by the way, we might have personal motivation in that one. Now, but the fasting when we don't, we're usually content to say, well, we don't have to do that. Well, if we would actually just follow the pattern, we would say, don't do it like this. And when you do it, y'all heard that, right? When you do it, do it like this. And here's the thing about it. This is what I like about Jesus' preaching. Much of Jesus' preaching is meaningless unless you do it. You can talk about it till you're blue in the face, but until you actually fast for a few days, and then you sit down with somebody and they say, what was it like? I have no words to describe. No words to describe. You follow what I'm saying? So I think that what that requires us to do is to teach the text. And the text doesn't say don't do it. You see, it says don't do it like this and do it like this. And that'll help us. It's just assumed. It's assumed that we as Christians at some level do this. And, uh, but I've also heard people say, well, the minute you meant, the, the day that you actually say that you did it, well, you just got your reward. Okay, well, uh, talk about fasting and just realize that God will give you no reward for that day. And then fast again next week. You know, 
you know, and then you'll be fine. <laughs> That's a good thought. It's a good thought. I think it would be uh, it would be a good thing, especially within our culture in North America. We're uh, we're really we're really struggling with some of these issues at a level that is not happening anywhere else in the world right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Yeah, I do think we have to put our we have we have to put our eyes of faith on at a certain level and read the text. You know, and when I put when I put my eyes of faith on, these are this is when I sit down and I read the text and I'm able to hope in things that uh are greater and more than I ever could have comprehended. Uh when I look my when I put my faith eyes on and now, don't misunderstand me. All of these different literary readings, historical, they're not all different versions of me. They're not like my Sunday Jeremy and my secular Monday Jeremy. That's not what I'm saying. They're all part of me, and they're all tools that I use to read. But my faith eyes, my faith eyes are the ones that allow me to believe in the impossible, to, be, to believe in the resurrection from the dead, to believe in hope. This is what allows me you know, talking about fasting and encouraging people to do this, these are the things that allow me to sit down with loved ones or friends or family, holding their hands and saying, God can help you. Let's pray. We can, we can defeat this addiction. That's what allows me to do that, you see. It's the belief in God to intervene. And uh, that's why it's so critical, I think, that we just simply advocate some of these ideas. Uh, other questions? Am I out of time? I'm out of time, Laura. Okay. If you have any other questions uh, you wanted to ask me, but you didn't want to ask in this setting about any of these texts, just just grab me afterwards, and I'll be happy to to uh, uh, show you who Ralph Gilmore is. <laughs> no, seriously, I'll, I'll try to answer uh, any questions you have, but I'm happy to, to to talk about any of these things. Thank you so much for your attention. Let's pray. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for giving us your scriptures. It's just it's so beautiful to be able to have your words of life that we can open up and read and, and grow and we can struggle in understanding and, and we can look to you as you guide our life and you transform us day by day into your image. We marvel at you. We worship you, our God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. We thank you so deeply for sending your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is resurrected from the dead, the one who gives us hope for ourselves and for our family and all that we know that it can be remade into your image. Bless what we do here, Lord. May this be encouraging. May we grow from it. May we trust you more and more each day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.